Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, back in Westminster this week. And I'm Colm O'Mongoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. Well, does anybody actually care about Brexit anymore? Or is it all coronavirus? Next week's negotiating round between the EU and the UK is cancelled, or so it appears. But what about the Brexit deadline of December 31st? Is that sustainable? The Northern Ireland border issue is always with us, be it for Brexit or coronavirus. We'll look at the latest. And there was a budget in the UK this week. How Brexity was it? And we'll have an interview with Catherine Day, the former Secretary General of the European Commission, on a surprising silver lining, depending on what way you look at it, from UK's departure from the European Union. But first of all, Sean, we can't avoid it. Coronavirus. It's definitely overtaken Brexit. And again, key points of difference between Ireland and the UK in terms of their response to it as well. People are looking rather askance at the gathering of Cheltenham, which it must be said includes tens of thousands of Irish people over there as well. But there's a definite lack of the caution that's been shown on this side of the water in the UK. Everybody's going to get it, uh, uh, seems to be the approach here in, in Britain. And it is very different to the approach in the rest of uh, Europe. And if we remember back, uh, one of the reasons I was in Brussels last week was uh, reporting on an uh, extraordinary meeting of health ministers. Uh, there's been a coordination process being jacked up at EU level. Britain was invited to take part in that but declined apparently because of the Brexit process and not wishing to be involved in anything uh, to do with the European Union although Switzerland uh, is involved in uh, that coordination measure at EU level but we are now starting to see a very radical divergence there's a good Brexity word uh, between the uh, health policies that are being carried out by EU countries and the health policies that's being carried out here in the UK. The, the Premier yeah, League Callum Hudson suspended today, Friday. Ch- member of the Chelsea team, uh, self-isolating due to infection. Members of the Leicester team also self-isolating. Burnley, I think, as well. The Arsenal manager. Let me let you into a trade secret here in our London office. We have not one, but two Arsenal mugs for making the tea in. So I'm hoping that by some kind of association we don't get coronavirus just by sipping uh, brew from an Arsenal mug. Right, but don't but, get them uh, mixed up, yeah. I certainly won't be getting them mixed up. Um, the red one's mine. Very simple. Um, just uh, as a matter of... In-, in terms of the gatherings, though, I mean, this is an example of the Premier League jumping ahead of the government. I mean, the government's advice is uh, carry on. Don't worry about uh, shutting down mass gatherings. That's why this... Cheltenham, it's Gold Cup Day today, Friday, uh, so the, the busiest, biggest day of the uh, the horse racing week uh, at Cheltenham. Uh, as you say, tens of thousands of Irish there. Uh, people have been tweeting out a, an advert by some betting company saying Cheltenham's coming home, accompanied by comments like, that's what we're worried about. Uh-huh. Uh, but yet this is, is in stark contrast to the advice that's going on elsewhere, because the British policy is, let's do what we can uh, that will be most effective at cutting down the numbers of people uh, presenting to hospital and spreading this disease. And so they say, if you've got a sore throat or a a, a fever, stay at home for seven days. That will be the most effective thing that you could do to stop the spread of virus. Going to a football match, going to a horse racing match, their chief scientific officer doesn't think will make much difference. He says you're more likely to be spreading it indoors anyway. So if you go to a pub 
or even if you stay at home, uh, right. other people may get infected that way. Yeah. But the great outdoors, they don't think it's much of a problem. Okay. Well, but that's, seem that's to be, very different that, to that kind of ignores The school situation as well. Yeah, well, that ignores um, the Very post, different advice. It ignores the post-racetrack reality in Cheltenham where card schools, pubs, hotels, restaurants are normally jam-packed with people. Anyway, to get away from coronavirus, but into the related matter of Brexit, We've got, I suppose, a running theme on this week's podcast that there are silver linings in Brexit in unexpected areas. Brexit preparation and contingency planning has had a positive effect in terms of the coronavirus end of things as well because there was planning towards getting countries on an emergency footing in the event of a no-deal Brexit, how people would deal with supply chains, how people would deal with restricted supplies of goods in supermarkets if that need arose, although the government here is at pains to point out that panic buying is unnecessary. But because it was emergency contingency planning for Brexit, it's actually had a spillover effect into the coronavirus planning. Is that the same in the UK or has that been indicated at all or is the B word still not being mentioned in official circles? Not really. It's more, dare we say, the C word of of corona. But uh, yes, you're right. The, The fact that people were focusing on things like supply chains Uh, It's not a new term that's suddenly come along to people now, along with epidemiology. Uh, People are used to the idea of of supply chains. And even we think back uh, well over a year ago, people pointing out that uh, Britain typically holds uh, a 24-hour stock of toilet paper, which it doesn't manufacture uh, itself. Uh, It's reliant on imports, and that's probably the same for Ireland as well. Uh, So the uh, important thing is to keep the supply chain moving uh, and not panic buy, which of course is what a lot of people did. Uh, although when I went down to check in my local supermarket here when I got back from Brussels, there was plenty of toilet paper there. It was bananas were the thing that were in very short supply. They, they looked like the, the banana shelves had been panic bought, but the, you can't really hoard bananas terribly well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these kind of supply chain issues, uh, very important. So people were focused on that and are communicating to the public, look, don't panic buy because the supply chain is set up to work in a particular fashion. If everybody buys their normal amount of food or toilet paper or whatever else, the supplies will just keep turning up. Okay. And they also say you know, things coming in in goods in containers aren't going to spread coronavirus. So, you know, don't panic about these kind of things. These are likely not to be uh, interrupted. But certainly that, you know, no good plan goes to waste ever. Uh, and the fact that these kind of contingency plans uh, were so recent, and also in the field of medicines as well, because people have been thinking that way, uh, I suspect we're seeing uh, a lot less impact and we'll see a lot less impact in the weeks and months ahead. And that, again, brings us back to the big difference between the EU and the British approach. The EU is taking immediate action now to try and stop the virus. The British are saying the peak isn't going to be for about three months, so there's not much point in doing stuff now because you're probably going to need it in two or three months down the road And that's really the time to strike. So there are very divergent views on how you manage this issue. And perhaps that divergence would have been uh, coming out in EU committees in previous years. uh, But now it's just coming out in in purely different uh, national action plans. And then we're seeing how this breaks down on the good old Northern Ireland border. We're in the Republic, you've got no yeah, schools. schools, third uh, levels, opening. colleges. We did we did have a tweet from the Northern Ireland Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill today saying that uh, the North needed to follow the lead of the South and close 
the schools and closed the third level colleges as well, as you might expect. Apparently there is a difference of opinion, according to our party colleague Matt Carty, one of the Sinn Féin TDs for Monaghan, a difference of opinion between Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill on this. So it's not a fortuitous day for differences of opinion between the First and Deputy First Ministers in Northern Ireland, given that the Cash for Ash report uh, is out today, Friday as well. Apparently the, the Sinn Féin... Um organisation have been saying that they've been coming under a lot of uh, pressure from parents in particular saying why is this happening, why are we uh, having such a, a divergent policy between the North and the South but you know, it's not just between the North and the South, uh, it is a really big and fundamental difference in the approach to managing a disease. Now maybe both approaches will be right, maybe they'll both be wrong or maybe one of them will be right and one of them will be wrong But uh, to use that well-worn journalistic cliche, only time will tell. Or as it says in the the undertaker's front window remains to be seen. As far as the Brexit negotiations go, the prospect of 100 or more British civil servants travelling to Brussels or 100 or more European civil servants travelling to London to conduct these negotiations, that has now been put on hold. That won't be happening. So at least in that area, there is some alignment. There is also... I think, a a desire on both sides to dial down the rhetoric about the expectations or the points of clash in this. We're still operating in that quasi-tunnel effect where there hasn't been a lot of leaks out of the negotiation process, really, and certainly not much briefing on the points of severe conflict. No, well, let's let's deal with the... um structure in the negotiations first. Yeah, you're right. They were supposed to have uh, a Eurostar load of Eurocrats coming to London next Wednesday uh, for three days uh, of talks. That has now been uh, cancelled, uh, but not 100% cancelled because they say they're going to explore other ways of trying to do this, whether they can do it with video conferencing, exchange of documents, etc. Uh, you know, we'll see. The plan is to try and keep negotiating somehow, but not have that uh, face-to-face meeting, which uh, no doubt we were all looking forward to standing outside a building uh, looking for scraps uh, to report upon. Uh, as for the leakage, that was true until a very short time ago when Reuters uh, started flashing out bits and pieces from a draft that they have gotten hold of from the European Commission uh, of their uh, what looks like draft offer to the UK. All right, there had been tell. talk earlier in the week that both sides uh, would be trying to publish their uh, draft offers and there was even talk of a, a competitive race to try and be the first one to get there because that old Brussels saying about um, he who wields the pen wields the power. If you get something down on paper first, the other side kind of have to respond to it. Um, it looks like a, a draft is starting to, to emerge, seep out from under the doors of the European Commission. Uh, right now, 441 pages, we're told, and then another 17 pages on common foreign and security policy even though the British have said they don't want to talk about that as far as the future relationship talks uh, are concerned. Uh, A couple of the bullet points that I've just seen on it, uh, one that says reciprocal access to fishing waters for both sides, but that there will be annual talks which have to end by the 10th of December each year about uh, setting each the following year's uh, fishing uh, quotas and total allowable catches. So that would kind of 
you know, be a, a halfway point to the positioning that we were seeing last week. Uh, also, an agreement that there'd be no reduction in environmental protection from either side. The British would have same kind of carbon trading regime uh, as the uh, European Union, and also a, a, a sort of a declaration that uh, level playing field provisions uh, would be regarded by both sides as necessary, and also some detail on how the uh, EU would notify the British, give them two weeks' notice if they were going to do any countermeasures to anything that they thought was uh, going against the, the spirit or letter of any level playing field provisions. So I'm sure there's loads of detail in 400-odd pages there, uh, but a little bit of seepage there uh, today. But again, asking the question from the billboard, uh, who's really going to be bothered about that now in the way that they were a few weeks, even a few months ago, uh, because of this coronavirus. Well, maybe that's so to the advantage of progress, where people's focus is elsewhere. There's less of a forensic interrogation of the points of clash. People have a lot more time to get down into the nitty-gritty of things and achieve compromises away from the harsh glare of the public spotlight. And maybe people will have things in some degree of perspective instead of fighting over something just because it's in the news. Indeed, and uh, that is a, probably a positive thing. Uh, and if the British uh, are able to uh, have their uh, document ready either today or in the next day or two or three or four, or if some things start to leak or don't leak, but you know, if, if both sides were planning to have uh, effectively a, a offer and counter-offer ready to go uh, this early in the talks process, that I think is an encouraging sign. And once people rinse through the details and don't get too caught up on uh, bellicose posturing, then you might actually start to see some serious progress in this. And they can winnow down the uh, points of agreement and points of difference and cover quite a lot of ground, really, until both sides issue uh, written positions like this, written offers like this. The talking is literally just that, talking. Uh, I think from last week and the fact that we have stuff on paper now, that suggests... Uh, a considerable amount of ground is being covered already, and that's probably a good thing. Sentiment is another thing, uh, as far as Brexit is concerned. There was an, an effort to try to maintain the hold on the seats that had been flipped from Labour to the Conservatives, particularly in the north of England. And a part of this was loosening the purse strings and engaging in lots of infrastructure spending and being not being seen as the austerity driving Tories anymore. How did the budget tally with that whole thing? Well, it tallied fairly well with that in that uh, there was a big chunk of money unleashed, about 18 billion uh, of uh, extra spending. It's about 0.7% of GDP. Uh, and that's chunky enough stuff. Uh, the biggest splash in, since it, 1992. Yeah, this is this is the case. It is uh, a big reversal of policy, if you like, a big end to the uh, austerity notion. Uh, and uh, this money is going to be borrowed. There's already a deficit in, in the UK, but they are going to borrow more. Uh, they think that by having held the purse strings very tight over the last decade, probably tighter than uh, was actually required from the financial crisis, they are now in a strong enough position to be able to sustain additional borrowing for investment, uh, more so than uh, for spending on day-to-day -day things. Uh, but with investment, you can make a, a stronger case that you will get an economic payback, you will raise productivity, and that's something the British are uh, particularly worried about. There's plenty of criticism about uh, starting to seep out now about just how much of an impact uh, this kind of spending will have on driving economic growth. Uh, but 
I, I don't think the people in the north of England or the southwest of England, uh, who are also getting some benefits from this in terms of infrastructure, I don't think they're going to be terribly worried about whether there's a 2.5% raise in productivity uh, in 10 to 15 years' time. Uh, they'll just be happy that there's a, a better quality road coming to their neighbourhood and some people are going to be working on it and some buildings, materials companies are going to uh, benefit from it. Uh, in terms of the short-term uh, effect, the uh, Office for Budget Responsibility, a bit like our own Fiscal Council, they have said that the uh, splurge of government spending uh, for this year and next year uh, is going to basically be about half of all the economic growth that there is in Britain. Uh, and that's a more serious uh, point because, yes, they've been bigging up this idea of let's invest in the regions. What they haven't been talking about is let's uh, invest money to try and counteract the effects of the slowdown that has been happening in this economy Largely, I would say, due to uh, the, the effects of Brexit, because we've seen uh, really four years of non-investment by the private sector uh, in Britain, coming on top of a decade of underinvestment by the public sector. Uh, and so that has right. inevitably had an effect on slowing down the British economy. Now they're stepping on the gas at a time when the private sector is still not investing because there's still not certainty about the course of, of uh, where Brexit is going. They needed to do this anyway. Uh, they are doing it now, and that's good. But the uh, official estimates for growth uh, this year is just a little bit more than 1%, which is really not very good, uh, certainly not by uh, British standards over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but half of that 1% uh, growth is going to be accounted for by this government spending splurge. Right. So if that wasn't there, you'd be looking at really poor growth. And that is before we got to coronavirus, because this has all happened so suddenly, they haven't had an, a chance to assess uh, the economic impact, and, and it's not going to be good. So maybe this cash spending is going to be the only thing that's keeping the economy uh, turning over here uh, in the year ahead. Okay, well, as, as you say, the drag on that uh, growth rate of one and a quarter percent, we're not going to know, at least from an official assessment, how much of that is down to Brexit because they're not publishing an impact assessment of, of Brexit. Michael Gove was in front of uh, the Co Commons Committee last week talking to Hilary Benn saying, yes, they would be talking about an official impact assessment of the UK, potential of a UK-US trade agreement, but that they'd be canvassing widely for the views of various stakeholders to get a view of what the impact of Brexit would be, but not publishing an official one. Because really publishing an official impact assessment, we're back to that old contempt for experts again. It's just a view. It's not the view. And he seemed smirking as he did so to find this whole idea of an impact assessment inconvenient, certainly not useful and not going to be published anyway. Yes, which, which prompted the question from the chairman of that committee, Hilary Benn. Why did you bother publishing one on your uh, trade mandate for the United States of America? He needed um, a drink of water to answer that one. He did and poured some of it over his mobile phone. So maybe he needs a new mobile phone as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the American trade deal uh, proposals, uh, which were published uh, on the same day as they started those talks with the EU. Uh, we didn't look at them uh, terribly much. But that is suggesting uh, a lift to uh, the UK economy of about 0.17% uh, over the longer term. Uh, all the previous economic estimates about the impact of leaving the EU uh, were that it would uh, reduce growth by more than it should have been by about 5 
four to five uh, percentage points. Uh, so there's an enormous gap there that uh, any kind of a trade deal with America is, just isn't going to make up. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you're going to, to leave with this, what looks like a more hardline sort of Brexit uh, than people had been previously factoring in, then maybe they ought to have a, an economic assessment of that before they do it. Uh, but Mr. Gove uh, declining, as you say, to uh, publish uh, the economic estimate that they have done. and uh, Pouring uh, cold water uh, on it, so to speak. Pouring cold water on it and several other things besides. All right, OK. So we're going to have a listen to a guest interview this week because last week at a meeting of the IIEA and the College Historical Society, that's the debating society in Trinity College in Dublin, Catherine Day, the Secretary-General of the European Union, was there. She was Secretary-General under both José Manuel Barroso and Jean-Claude Juncker. She was in post from 2005 to 2015. And one of the things she was looking at was the potential that Europe and the social Europe in particular, social programmes to be rolled out by Europe, might actually make more progress now because the UK had acted as a barrier there heretofore. So let's hear from her. Well, I think one of the imbalances in the European Union at the moment is that we have a very well-developed economic policy and an underdeveloped social policy. And I think that's giving rise to the feeling in parts of our population of winners and losers and people who are getting left behind and also the feeling that while well, Brussels cares more about the, the economic side or the bankers than it does about the citizen. Um, and I think we need to develop a, pol- a range of policies that shows people what I believe to be true, that the European Union does care very deeply about all its citizens and wants to find ways to reach them and help them achieve their full potential. Um, and I think it's one of the very few positives about the UK leaving, and there are, it's hard to think of any others, but the UK has been very opposed for most of its membership to developing a European social policy. And I do think that um, with that um, constant opposition removed, uh, the EU now has an opportunity but also an obligation to develop its social policy. That's not to say that it will be easy, because if you ask 15 Europeans what they think should be European social policy, you'll get at least 15 different answers. But I think the um, rise of populism, the concern about losing parts of the population, is bringing about the political feeling that we have to do more in this area. And that will involve decisions that go from policy to how you spend the budget, where you spend the budget, who pays, who benefits... Um, and that's part of remaking a slightly different kind of EU now that the UK has left. And what specific ways would they have blocked that or how did it manifest itself? Because I think going back, is it more than 15 years at this stage to what was called the Lisbon Agenda as opposed to the Lisbon Treaty where they wanted an economic strand for Europe and a social strand of Europe, the economic strand was the piglet, as it were, that thrust its way forward, whereas the social strand was the runt of the litter. How did it become the runt of the litter? To what degree did the UK play a role in that? And what was it in particular that the UK, insofar as they did play a role, what did they particularly object to? Well, I think particularly during the crisis after 2008, 
um, there was um, an existential need and a recognition that Europe needed binding rules on, on budgets, especially of countries that are in the euro. So we have now a very tight uh, way of doing economic policy making together. Um, there were attempts to bring in the social dimension to look, for example, at uh, the minimum wage, to look at European social insurance for unemployment. Um, these are very difficult issues, largely because it comes down to who pays for them. Um, but uh, on the one hand, the UK not being in the euro didn't attempt to stop the euro area countries taking decisions. But on the other hand, anything to, to be done on an EU-wide basis, the UK was very allergic to, I would say. Um, and it wouldn't be fair to blame the UK alone for the lack of a European social policy. But when one of your biggest, most articulate member states is stridently against a policy, it's difficult to make headway. And it didn't allow really the emergence of a consensus around what a European social policy should do. And would you say that it didn't allow the emergence of a consensus or would you say that there was active networking in the background to build a coalition against it? Um, oh, yes, probably. Uh, but I think, you know, to say once the, the main objector has been removed, all will now be sweetness and light and it will all happily follow, that was the point I was trying to get at, that there is not yet a consensus among the 27 as to what... Uh, the right kind of social policy would be. But now the, the space is clear for them to have that discussion and it probably will not be one policy, but it should be um, a re an increased effort um, uh, and an understanding of how closely economic and social policy are linked. It was also said that Ireland hid behind the UK to a certain degree. Would you say that that's fair and if so, how did they do it? Um, I think it would be fair to say that Ireland is more in the Anglo-Saxon camp on these kind of questions. Um, and uh, I think we have a very... We are on the one end of um, wanting light regulation. And a lot of the social policy will come through legislation. Um, I'm chairing the Citizens' Assembly on gender equality at the moment. And um, equal pay came to Ireland thanks to European legislation and many other pieces of social progress since then have come through the European route. Um, and to make them happen, they often go through legislation. So um, to get uh, to a point where the 27 countries can decide what new pieces of social legislation do they want and are they prepared to sign up to, that I think is going to take a lot of discussion. But I think there's a recognition that it's timely and that it's necessary. I've heard the EU described as a legalistic, that, and that not being used as a pejorative, a, a, just as simply as... Uh, a descriptor of the European Union that it is legalistic and as a result there's a level of insistence on the European part on the level playing field provisions that sort of I'm good for this on the part of Boris Johnson you know we won't deviate from the standards we won't fall below a certain minimum floor that, that just will never be good enough for Europe on this Europe must have it stitched in explicit terms into a treaty that is then if necessary legally actionable after the fact well, that's how we've got to the sophisticated European Union we have today. Um, if you believe the world is full of gentlemen who always um, honour their word, I don't think you're living in the 21st century universe. Um, and the European member states trust each other a lot, but they also know that governments can change, um, people can make commitments, and then somebody else doesn't want to honour them. And that's why um, it has always backed up what it does with uh, legislation and the ultimate uh, recourse to the Court of Justice. 
And um, I think it is like having rules in sport and having referees in sport. Um, you trust that the players will play a clean game, but if they don't, there's somebody there to pick them up and not to allow the ones who play by the rules to lose uh, to those who don't play by the rules. And this comes out of European history. Um, most of us are small countries. Um, we see the damage that can be done by um, having the, the rule of might over the rule of law, and we systematically choose the rule of law because it is a protection for the smaller countries. And that's why the level playing field is important. Um, in the single market, the countries agreed to dismantle the barriers that they had to protect themselves against the others in return for... Uh, a commitment to abide by common rules so that they wouldn't deliberately undermine each other in a less protected uh, economic area. And at the same time, Europe hasn't been entirely zealous in the enforcement of, say, its debt-level targets when France breached them in the past. Do you think that there is an element of flexibility on the part of Europe with regard to rules that perhaps the UK is underestimating, that when it signs up to certain things, there may be negotiable leeway in the future, but that the principles must be established in the treaty? Or do you think the rules are the rules and that will be the rule because the, Europe, Europe, the UK is a third country? And I know this is very much in the realms of the hypothetical. Well, um, first of all, the European rules are not administered by robots. They're uh, ultimately decided by politicians. Um, and so when I say that, I'm leading to saying that there's always a margin of understanding um, and you can never make rules um, that will cover every eventuality. So if there are extenuating circumstances, uh, things happen, um, there's always a willingness on the European side to, to listen and to try to find solutions. And that's what we do with each other inside the Union and we do it with loyal partners um, and allies outside as well. Um, but there has to be a seriousness to the rules and um, extenuating circumstances have to be justified and demonstrated to be real. And um, the intention has to be to try to abide by the rules. Um, but the Europeans also invented the world realpolitik and there's no point in sitting in a corner saying, oh, but I have the rules, I have the rules, if everybody has left the pitch and uh, nobody wants to play by those rules anymore. So you need the buy-in to the rules, um, but there, there's always a willingness to, to listen and to try to find solutions and compromises. That's often why it takes so long to reach decisions in the European Union. But it's also why they work afterwards, because the length of time, the extra time that you take to buy in a member state to deal with their problems, to bring them on board, gives you a higher guarantee that they will go home and implement the outcome afterwards. Finally then, where do you think the crunch points will be? We've heard um, fisheries being mentioned as one thing, that actually the economic value of fish to the UK is outweighed by the symbolism of control of British waters and all the historical resonance that has. For the Europeans, fish is also important because of... Uh, etc. So do you see fish being a potential flashpoint or do you think it'll come down to an annually renegotiated access uh, thing or do you see the real pinch point coming somewhere else in the negotiations? What would be your own estimation of it? Well in most trade negotiations agriculture and fish are among the last issues to be settled because they are emotional as well as economic and I think the British have staked out the ground on fisheries, but um, as you point out, um, 
uh, fisheries uh, is important to the European Union too because of their importance on the, in coastal communities. Um, so that may be the thing that is the flag that's waved very wildly, but in terms of economic and political significant significance at a macro level, um, th- their importance is far less than, say, the situation of financial services for the UK. So I would think the real squeeze will come when the UK wants to have access for its financial services and the Europeans say, sorry, um, unless you accept other conditions, um, then we're not giving you the same access as you have at the moment. So could Britain's coastal communities and fishing communities be the next DUP of this whole process? I have no idea. I mean, we will have to see. Because, again, I, I come back to my point, the Europeans are always understanding. They will certainly not want to arrive at arrangements that would be negative for coastal communities, but they will always have in mind the overall importance, which goes beyond the purely economic, but they will have to weigh up um, what are we giving and what are we getting. And who knows at this stage, because the negotiations have just started and it will be five to midnight um, before we get to the, the real crunch, I think. Do you think they trust Boris Johnson? I don't think you have to trust people to negotiate with them. I think you you need to establish some ground rules. You need to um, make sure you're, what you're trying to get is clear and that you enshrine it in sufficiently robust and enforceable terms that it's never a matter of trust and it's not a matter of who is Prime Minister. It's a question of what is in the treaty. And people in Brussels often like to use Latin phrases and I'm sure you remember... In the Troika years, Ali Ren saying pacta sunt servanda, you know, so what has been agreed has been agreed and has to be respected. Okay. Non-legitimate carborundum. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> and that was Catherine Day, the uh, Secretary-General of the European Commission from 2005 until 2015. So that's it for this week, Sean. You're back to freely mingling in the community, unlike myself, who's working from home and not going into the office. Well, uh, lucky for you. Um, according to Boris Johnson, I ought to be doing the same because I had a bit of a sore throat, you might have noticed, uh, last week. Uh, but I work for cruel bosses in Ireland who say, no, no, keep at it, old boy. And uh, keeping at it is what I will do. Well, in my relative, if hell is other people, as Sartre said, I'm uh, living a relatively heavenly existence in that case, staying out of the office. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And from me, Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent in London. And if you're on the lookout for another podcast, RTE is excited to say that another new podcast has just come out. It's the States of Mind podcast. That's by my colleague Jackie Fox. She's been speaking to Brian O'Donovan and a range of other guests. They're going to be looking at the US election, the presidential election, the race of the Democratic Party and all aspects of the presidential election. The first episode is out now. You can get it through the usual channels if you look up and subscribe. That's States of Mind. Enjoy and thanks for listening.